the theme of this whole series, is that God wants us to treat people the way that he treated us through Christ. My tendency, like uh, your tendency, I tend to treat people the way that they have treated me. Uh, I tend to treat people the way that I think is best for me. I, I tend to treat people the way that I think I can get the most out of people. But God says, no, as a follower of Jesus, here's the goal. You're to treat other people the way that I have treated you in Christ. And we looked at the scripture where Jesus said, uh, let me just tell you how extreme, let me tell you how far I want you to take this principle. I want you to embrace, to befriend, to love your enemies. Because everybody loves their friends, or at least attempts to. But he's saying, I want you to apply this principle to the point where one day you can treat as a friend and embrace and love the difficult people in your life, your enemies. And then we said, when we hear something like that, we're, we're like, whoa, 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 stop. Question, Jesus. Can I tell you my story? Because you really need to hear my story. Because we feel like, you know, we've been so mistreated. Uh, we've been abused. We've been rejected. We've been abandoned. And we feel like we've got a story to tell. And if we could just sit Jesus down for a minute, you know, let me tell you what happened to me. And, and he hears our story then he'd have to say, oh, okay then, you're the exception to the standard. You get a pass. You don't have to love your enemy because, I mean, yours is such an extreme case. You're the exception. So last time we talked about our story, my story, your story. And we said that our story begins something like this. Before you were born, before you said your first word, before you had your first thought, The Heavenly Father chose you to be His child. And He forgave you of your sins and He adopted you as His child and He gave you full and total access to Him at any time. He gave you His word and He promised you that someday you'd live in His kingdom and He would dwell with you. That's how our story begins. But our tendency is to pick up our story where we are hurt, where somebody left us, where somebody mistreated us, where somebody took advantage of us. And we come to God with our hurts and with our rejection, and we say, you know, do I, do I really have to love this person? Like, 99% of the people in my life, I'm there with you, Jesus, I can do it. But this person, you know, in light of what they've done to me? Because here's the thing, when you and I lose sight of where our story begins, then our tendency is to start doing those things that ensure that we get our fair share. We get real focused on what is fair by our interpretation. We get real focused on what we think is just. We get real focused on my rights. We get real focused on treat me with respect. We get real focused on me, 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 I, 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 my, my, my. And without ever meaning to, we go over to an old, familiar emotional toolbox. And we begin to approach relationships from the standpoint of convincing people and convicting people and coercing people, and controlling people. Those are the four tools that we lean into. The old toolbox. In some cases, it's just handed down for generations and through, our, through our stories. Convince, convict, coerce, control. But I'm telling you, if your whole outlook on life is, I've got to get my fair share, I've got to get what's owed to me, 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 you'll destroy the relationships that are most important to you. Because relationships don't thrive on rejection, they thrive on acceptance. Our hearts move away from rejection and they move toward acceptance. 
know the other ironic thing about this approach to relationship? It causes us, this, this approach causes us to lose influence with people. See, I don't allow myself to be influenced by people who are trying to convince me and control me all the time. And you are not open to the influence of someone who's always got their agenda that they're trying to cram on you. So this morning, we're going to look at a different relational toolbox. We're going to look at Jesus' toolbox. And just let me give you the big picture before you, know, you doze off or you have to leave early or whatever. The greatest influencer who ever walked on this earth was Jesus Christ. Over a third of the world's population today claims that he's their Messiah, their Lord. Over a third. He was the master influencer. And as you read the Gospels, it's pretty evident that he, he never resorted to convincing, convicting, coercing, controlling. That, he never went there. He had something else, and it was extremely effective. And if you can just kind of hang with me for the next little while, uh, and if you allow ourselves to see from God's word, that just as this approach uh, positioned Jesus to influence people, the same set of tools that he used will position us as husbands to be influencers in our families. It'll position you as wives to be influencers in your, in your families. It'll position you to be influencers in your workplace. It'll position you to be influencers in your community. It'll position those of us who are leaders in a church, in a Christian community, to influence people towards Jesus. And, and people won't feel used, and they won't feel coerced, and they won't feel controlled. And there's a whole different level of motivation. There's a whole different agenda, and we're going to look at what that is. So, if you have your Bible or you're using the Bible app or whatever, uh, if you have your Bible on your device, you can follow along. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, so a, a fairly familiar passage of Scripture. If you've spent any time uh, in church circles, you've probably heard some of these verses. You've sung some of these words. The book of Philippians is a letter that was written to some people in the city of Philippi. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, knew most of them, uh, and he felt the same he felt, they, they kind of felt the same way about each other as, as we do sometimes with the people around us. And so he had some things to say to them. And some of the things that uh, we looked at last uh, time in the book of Ephesians, he kind of builds on that a little bit. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to start to read at verse 3. Begins with a very unrealistic request. And then he explains it. So hang with it. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that other people are better than you. What he's saying is this, that in our relationships with other people, we are to consider other people better than ourselves. Then he goes on, verse 5. Relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And now he's not changing the subject. He's just saying, consider others better than yourselves. Look not just to your own interest, but to the interest of others. And he's saying, and this is what describes better than, this better than anything else. This is what typifies the attitude or the perspective that Jesus Christ had. And again, Paul's going back to what Jesus said, and he goes back to, you know, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you've got to adopt his relational style. And his relational style was consider others better than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but to the interests of others. And, of course, we push back from that a little bit because we're like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. If everybody did that, if everybody did that, I'd be open to that. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm not going to be the first because, let's be honest, if, if everybody all did this at once, I'm in. But I don't want to be the first because if I'm the first, then I'm just going to get run over. You know, if we just had a starting point where we all just decided from here on out this is the way we're going to interact, sure, I'm in. But I don't want to be the, first, the trailblazer. It's impractical. 
So it'll never work. So the Apostle Paul says, let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of, of Christ Jesus. And then he gives us a description of Jesus' approach. Verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You know what that means? It means that when Jesus was on the earth, he never pulled rank. He never, at no point, at no point was he sitting around in a conversation and said, look, I'm God, okay? So there, I win, you know? And even when things got real frustrating, and he had those times, things got out of control, he never said, okay, okay, enough, look, I'm God, you guys are not smart enough, you know? Uh, he never did that. Even though he was God, even though he had position, he had every right to be able to pull rank, but he never once did he, never once did he go for the God button while he was on earth. He never did that. He, he took his rank as God, and he set it aside as he approached relationships with men and women. Paul goes on, verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You know what else he did? He laid, not only laid aside his rank, he laid aside his rights. Instead of showing up and saying, look, I'm the son of God, so let me tell you what you need to you know, do for me. The Bible says, all through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that when Jesus showed up, he appeared as a servant. He took everything that was rightfully his, as the Son of God, everything that he deserved, everything that was coming his way, he took all of that for the sake of relationship with you and me, he set it all aside. He goes on, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Know what else Jesus did in his relational style? This sort of sums up the whole thing. He humbled himself. You know what that humble himself meant? It meant that he placed himself under other people. The Son of God allowed some smelly Roman soldier to tie his wrists. The Son of God allowed men to mistreat him and abuse him and spit on him and beat him. The Son of God allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. And the Apostle Paul says, let me show you how extreme this whole thing is. Not only did he lay down his life, but he even to the point of death on a cross. That's how far Jesus took this whole idea of consider other people better than yourself. That's how far he took this whole idea of consider other people's interests more important than your own. Rank wasn't an issue. Rights weren't an issue. Respect wasn't an issue. He took the issue of rights, rank, and, and respect, and he said, I'm going to take all of that, and I'm going to lay it aside. Why did he do that? Here's why. Because for Jesus to have maintained his rank and, and, and insisted on his rights and all the respect that was due him, for him to have held to that would have made him unable to come into this world to be our Savior. In other words, so he had a dilemma. I can get what's coming to me. I'm the son of God. I can get everything I deserve. I can maintain my rank and my rights and get all the respect I deserve. I can maintain all of that. Or I can enter into a relationship with humanity. But he couldn't have it both ways. So he had a values challenge. Is your rank and your rights and your respect important, Jesus? Well, yeah, it's important. Is relationship with humanity important? Oh, yeah, it's important. Which is going to take priority, Jesus? Which is going to take priority? What you rightfully have coming to you or relationship with humanity, which is going to take priority? Which one? And Jesus decided that relationship with humanity takes priority. I'm willing to lay aside my rank, my rights, all the respect that's due me for the sake of entering into relationship with my prized creation. 
And then he kind of looks you square in the eye, and he looks me square in the eye, and he says, now, as my followers, I expect you to do the same thing. Look at verse, go back to verse 3 again, because now this whole passage kind of comes alive. Verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. You, you know what he's saying? In light of what Christ has done for you, in other words, before you start trying to do for people, get a real solid, firm grip on what he's done for you. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed by his grace, to be captured by his love, to be amazed that he wants a relationship with you and was willing to go to that kind of extreme to have that relationship with you. It says, in humility, with a firm grasp of what God has done for you, with that in mind, now go value others above yourselves. That's exactly what your Savior did when he faced the cross. As much as I don't want to do that, he made it pretty clear, I'd really rather not do this. But he said, I'm going to lay aside my deal for their deal. I'm going to set aside my rights for their salvation. I'm going to lay aside my comfort and what I've got coming to me and what I deserve for the sake of relationship with humanity. Can we pause for just a minute? And can I kind of maybe dive into your life for a second? Can you imagine what God must think? Can you imagine how he must feel knowing that his son laid aside all of that so that he could have a relationship with you? And you and I, because of things like my rights and my respect, and that's not fair, we're unwilling to lay our little deal aside in order to restore relationships with other people. Or maybe in your marriage, you know, you've been hurt, and you've been hurt, and you've been hurt, and over and over, and it's a pattern, and you know you should forgive, but you just don't want to because it's his turn. It's her turn. You did it last time. You just can't do that anymore. And God's saying, whoa, 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 you're, 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 you've lost sight. You're looking, you're looking this way. It's time to look this way. Maybe your teenager, your adult child's embarrassed you and hurt you, made things complicated for you, and they're just out there, and you're like, you know, that's enough. You're, you're, you're out. It's over. Our, we consider our relationship done, and you're doing the whole convince, convict, coerce, and control thing. And I think God's going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You've got to lay your agenda aside for the sake of relationship, because that's what I did. I mean, I know the, relationship, the issues are important and the relationship's important, but here's how I prioritize these values. So what are you going to do now? And all of a sudden, we're reminded at the cross that we lost our right not to love people. It's not original with me. I, I wish I could give it credit, but I don't know who I, where I found it, but I'm going to repeat it because we need to let that sink in a little bit. At the cross, we lost our right not to love people. Let me tell you what I think is most amazing about this passage in Philippians 2. Uh, look where it goes from here, verse, eight, uh, verse 9. It says, therefore, in light of everything that we've read so far, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Let me give you a little quiz here. Has every knee bowed to the name of Jesus? No. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord. Has every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord? No, not yet. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Here's what I think is the most amazing point here. That while you and I are down here on earth, all bent out of shape and hurt and got our feelings hurt and we're offended and, you know, he offended me and she said that and I can't believe it. And I don't want to make light of it because, I mean, some of you really, you got real stuff. 
you get real hurt. Others, some of you have experienced like the major, major hurt. But while we're down here focused on me, 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 my, 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 I've got to convince, convict, coerce, and control. I've got to get what's rightfully mine. I deserve this, not that. This is so clear that your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, still to this day has not received the glory that he deserves. You're like, hmm, never thought of that. Do you know why he hasn't received that yet? Because he knows that the day that the trumpet sounds and he returns, that humanity is going to lose their freedom to choose him. That when he shows up for the second time, whatever that looks like, that when he shows up for the second time, it's over. That no one is going to have another opportunity to choose him. That time, that period is done. You know how when you touch something very hot, you don't say, hmm, that's very hot. I should pull my hand away now. I will do that. Yes, move my hand. No, what do you do? You react. The Bible says when Jesus shows up, everybody's going to react. Everybody's going to fall to their knees. They aren't going to have to think through their theology. He, is he really the son of God? I don't know. And what about that? And this thing, and I got some questions. It's just like, boom, to your knees. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God. But at that point, nobody gets to choose anymore. At the, and, the, and the reason that our Savior waits to receive what's due him, the reason that to this day he still hasn't received all the respect and all the honor and all the glory that's due him is because he continues to put relationship with humanity above what he has coming to him. Because he knows that the day that he returns and reveals his glory and he receives the glory that's due him, there will be people with whom he will have no relationship. know what this means? It means if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Maybe you think you kind of believe, but you're not really sure. You're still on the outside looking in. You got some things that are like holding you back. And this might be something uh, kind of a school of thought, or it might be something in your lifestyle or something. Something's keeping you from from following Jesus. Uh, You're just kind of putting that off. Let me tell you something. And I think this is incredible. The God of heaven, the, the and his son Jesus continue to lay aside what they rightfully have coming to them for your sake. Relationship with you is is so important, so valuable to them that they continue to forego what they justly have coming to them. You know, we've, uh, we've talked about these tools in the old toolbox that we keep going back to, this relational toolbox, the convincing and the convicting and the coercing and the controlling you know what's in Jesus' toolbox? Let's talk about that. There are a lot of things that I don't have the intelligence or the spiritual insight to figure out, but three things from this passage kind of jump out at me. Um, do you know what we find in here? This, this is what I'm calling Jesus' uh, toolbox for relationships. So here's what we find. Number one, we find service. Do you know how Jesus approaches relationships, a relationship with you? By serving you. By showing up in the form of a servant. Second thing we find in Jesus' toolbox, and this is a hard one, is submission. Know what the Bible says about submission? It says, submit yourselves one to another. And Jesus says, I modeled this for you. I came to this earth. I put your deal, your issues, your concerns ahead of mine. I considered you more important than me. And now as you move into relationships with other people, I want you to do that same thing. You serve them. You submit to them. And the third thing we find in Jesus' toolbox is sacrifice. 
as Paul puts it, sacrifice even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. And through service and through submission and through sacrifice, see, this kind of doesn't make any sense because this is so against intuition. But you might walk out of here this morning and, uh, and you'll question it. You might not even believe it. But through service and through submission and through sacrifice, he got your attention. He brought you to a point of repentance. He saved you forever, not by convincing you, not by convicting and coercing and controlling you, but by serving, by submitting, and by sacrificing. This is how Jesus gained his influence. It says to me as a husband, this is how I love my wife. It says to me as a father, this is how I'm to love my children. It says to me as a leader in the church, this is how I'm to love you, the people in this church. It says to me as a member of this community, that this is how I'm to love the people that I run into, that I do business with, that I work with. It says to those of you who are wives, this is how you love your husbands. It says to those of you who are, who are teenagers and children, this is how you love your parents and your brothers and your sisters. And for those of you who work with difficult employers or with difficult employees, this is how you approach the people at work. And to those of you who have strained relationships with extended family, this is how you approach those difficult family members. To those of you who have an ex-husband or an ex-wife, this is how you approach those people from your past. This is hard, hard stuff. But this opens the door for relationship. Those tools that we like to use, convince, convict, coerce, and control, that closes and locks the door on a healthy relationship. It communicates rejection. But this toolbox that Jesus offers us, serve, submit, and sacrifice, that opens the door to real relationship because it communicates acceptance. I'll tell you, though, Jesus' toolbox won't do a whole lot for you as far as getting your fair share. Okay? You've got to know that. It won't necessarily do much in terms of getting you what you think you deserve. It won't accomplish a whole lot in terms of making sure that everyone does what you think they ought to do for you. But it'll open the door to a genuine relationship. Our, to- our tools that we lean into feel better short term, uh, but it- they wreak havoc in relationships long term. Um, let's just look at these for a second. Um, in general, what would happen today, today, on the way home? Or this afternoon with your family, tomorrow morning at work, or in a few weeks at school. What would happen if your whole approach with every person that you're in relationship was this? How can I serve you? How can I consider your deal more important than mine? How can I put your concerns ahead of my own? Where do I have an opportunity to sacrifice for their good? How can I serve? How can I submit? How can I get, give their thing priority over mine? And where's the opportunity for me to sacrifice for them on their behalf? Because Jesus says, if you're going to really follow me, this is where I'm going to lead you. If you're going to be my followers, that's how you're going to represent me. If you're going to be somebody who bears my name, then that's how I want others to see you. Can we imagine for just a minute a church even of a church of a couple hundred people in a small town in New England, if you can think of one? Can we imagine a church where we were all learning and committing to shutting the lid on our old familiar relational toolbox and operating this way, leaning into service, submission, and sacrifice? Can you imagine a group of people like that? Can you imagine the impact of a group of people like that who saw the community as an opportunity where we could serve? 
where we could consider someone else's deal more important than ours, where we could jump at opportunities to sacrifice. Can you imagine being a part of a church like that? Can you imagine living in a community like that? Can you imagine the potential impact and influence that it would have on other people? Because see, if our Lord Jesus Christ is the head of this church, then this is where he's going to take us. And I'm going to tell you where it starts. It starts with me leading my family and loving my wife and my kids this way. It starts with husbands, it starts with wives, it starts with mom and dads, and it starts with kids and teenagers, it starts with employees and employers. Just start wherever you are. It starts with us deciding that my rights, what I have coming to me, what I think I deserve, what I think other people deserve, what I think people owe me, all that's going to take a backseat to serving, submitting, sacrificing. Man, I can't wait to see that played out. In our lives, in my life, in your life, in the life of our church, the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is the opportunity and the possibility to see God's truth active in our lives every day. I can't wait. So as you pray for this church, let's pray, God, we want to be a community of believers that's characterized by the character of Christ, that that we will serve, that we will submit to one another, that we'll sacrifice for the sake of one another. Our challenge is going to be that um, you and I run into people almost every day. Maybe you live with someone like this. Don't look at them right now. And you say, you know, the problem is I don't think they're worth serving, really. I don't see what I get out of it. I don't think they're worth sacrificing for. Certainly have a hard time placing myself under them, considering their thing more important than mine. When I look at their behavior, when I look at their character, I just don't think I can bring myself to do that. They don't deserve that kind of treatment. (laughs) But what Jesus modeled for us, and it's taught throughout the Old and the New Testament, is that every person, regardless of their character... Every person, regardless of their behavior, every person, regardless of their story, has something unique about them that makes them acceptable and makes them respectable. Here's what it is. In the creation story in Genesis, in chapter 1, verse 26, it says this. As God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Listen, every person that you will ever come eyeball to eyeball with in your life has been created in God's image. It's as if every single person you sit next to in church, every single person you rub shoulders with at work that you spend time with, has God's signature on them. Hmm. To be made in the image of God means that we have something that's a part of us as human beings that the rest of creation doesn't have. And there are all kinds of books written about what that is exactly. But there are a few things that we know are true. Like God, we have the ability for relationship. Like God, we have the ability for deep community. Like God, we have the ability to lead and to rule. Like God, we have the ability to create. Like God, we have personality, we have mind, we have will, we have emotions. But the significant thing about these these verses in Genesis 1 is that God made us in such a way that we're different from the rest of creation. We are his prized creation, so much so that we bear his signature. We are made in his image, made in his likeness. It's true of everybody in this room, 
It's true of everybody that you see and interact with for the rest of your life. Now, with that in mind, here's the big question. How then should I treat, how should I respond to people who have God's signature on them? How do I treat them? How should you react and respond to people who've been made in his image? How should you react and respond to a human race that is of such value to God that when it was separated from him, he went looking for us? And when he found us, he paid the highest price he could pay in order to bring us back. It served, submit, sacrifice. And how does God feel? How does God think when I mistreat, take advantage of, am rude to or dismiss someone who is that important to him? Let me ask you another question. This one's easier. How do you respond to the creations and possessions of people that you respect? How do you respond to their creations and possessions when you're in their presence? What do you do with other people's things, things they've made, things they own? What do you do with their things when you're in their presence? Here's what you do. You treat them very respectfully. And you don't treat those things, you don't respond to those things based on the inherent value of those things. You respond and handle those things in light of who they belong to, don't you? And suddenly, I've got to sit down and when I apply this to God, because if, if, he, if he sees it the same way, you know, suddenly everybody's respectable. Suddenly everyone's acceptable, not because of their character and their behavior, but because of whose signature is on them. Let me show you some artwork. I've got some artwork here. You've probably never seen anything quite like this before. Um, this, is, uh, this is a photo of uh, an actual piece of artwork that I have in my possession. This was done by, I should just disclaimer, I have two grown kids, or 20, Ben's 25, Aaron's 21. One of them is in the room. Um, so this is uh, by Ben. I don't know what age. You notice that uh, this obviously is a car. It's a, I think it's a NASCAR. Um, I don't know what's going on. I don't know. One of those tires is flat. I don't know if it's front or the back. The detail, I mean, the detail is insane in this picture. And I'm not sure if that's a football. I don't know what's going on. So, so there's that. Then the next one is, uh, this, is uh, this is also by Ben. And uh, this might have been... Actually, can, can you flip that around? There we go. That's it there. Yes, that's better. <laughs> that you can see. Obviously, I don't need to explain that one. And then uh, next we have, uh, oh, another one by Ben. Ben was in an abstract phase for a little while. And you think this is just blots on a, no, 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 no. His teacher was kind enough to add at the bottom, if we could show it, Junior Asparagus. Now you see it, don't you? You know from Veggie Tales that clearly now I see Junior. It's like it's like one of those 3D. Uh, what do they call the uh, you know the posters you used to stare at and you kind of could see 3D images. That's what that is. Now you see him. No, you don't. Next. Oh, this one. I just this one. Um, this is by Aaron. Um, sorry if that's disturbing to you. Um, <laughs> the pictures are one thing, but the message is what I just really wanted you to see. That Dad, you are. The best dad in the world. So, just in case you were wondering, you thought it was you. Just want to be clear. Now you know. So, uh, next, um, this one I love, and I don't think my wife's in the room. But we got Aaron. Got some pigs. We got Aaron, and then we got mom. And I don't know how rude. I mean, really. So, um, you should probably talk with your mother about that later. Um, I also love that every time Aaron drew a picture of the sun, it was wearing sunglasses. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be, right? Uh, next. Oh, yeah, those are all, so there, there's, there's a collection of some of their artwork. All right, here's my point. 
let me tell you about this artwork. This artwork is worth zero. Sorry. There isn't even a market for this. There's no place I could take it to sell it. It has no value. It's not worth a penny. Actually, I think it might have been worth more if the paint were still in the bottle and the paper was still in the packaging. But now it's worthless in and of itself. So how do I respond a few years ago when my preschool kids come to me and Ben and Aaron would meet me at the door with this? Can you imagine me saying, what is that? That is awful. What is wrong with you? Now come here, I love you. Do you know what makes this valuable to me? The hands that created it. The minds that envisioned it. Because of my relationship with the ones who created it, that's why it's valuable to me. That's why I still have it. Because when it comes from their hands, suddenly it has great value to me. Suddenly I treat this with, re- with respect, and as a good parent, I put it where? On the, On the refrigerator, exactly. That's why magnets were created. And I put it on my bulletin board in my office. And Do you know why I put it on my refrigerator? Do you know why I put it on the bulletin board in my office? Because when other people come over, I can say, look what my kids did. But you wish your kids were this gifted. Look, Ben did that. He's an abstract thinker. And Aaron did this one. It's an abstract thing over there, not quite sure. But it doesn't matter because the issue is not this. It's not the artwork. The issue is the hands that made it. Here's my point. Here's a thought that I think could transform all of our relationships should it get down to our heart level. The person beside you, in front of you, behind you, the people you live with and work with, the people that you encounter, but you don't even know their names, the people that you encounter every day are God's artwork. What if we treated them in spite of their character and in spite of their behavior, in spite of the things we've already decided about them? What if we treated them in light of the hands that created them? Wow. Every single person that you rub shoulders with, that you look at, that you run into, that you use or misuse, that you are rude to, that you take advantage of, that you work with, that you work for, that you love, they're all God's artwork. How much respect then do we have for the person who created them? The way that you and I treat people is a reflection of our love and respect for their creator, our Father in heaven. Listen to this in 1 John 4. I love what the lady on the, the video that you guys provided was saying about having heard of love and having heard of God, but the idea that they came together and that God is love. And we kind of take that, that uh, theology for granted, thanks to First John. In chapter 4, the writer says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Oh, no, no, I'm not a liar. I mean, God, I can't stand that person, but I love most people, but, that per- so, but don't call me a liar. And God's like, you're a liar. But I'm not lying. I genuinely love you, God. Didn't you hear me singing to you at church on Sunday? Yeah, but look how you treat that person. Yeah, but that person's miserable. I love you, God. And God says, you're a liar. You're living a lie. It says, for whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they've seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 
bottom line. Every person in the world, everyone you are in relationship with, have been in relationship with, will be in relationship with, is God's artwork. Every person is God's artwork. And the way you treat them is a reflection of your love and respect for your Heavenly Father. Here's what's kind of cool. God's got some skinny artwork. He's got some fat artwork. He's got some white artwork, some black artwork, some brown artwork. He's got some smart artwork. Wake your smile. He's got some educated artwork. He's got some uneducated artwork. He's got rich artwork. He's got poor artwork. He's got some really neat artwork. He's got, you mean talk about diverse uh, uh, vision, I tell you. He's got artwork that, you know, you're like, where, where do you put this? Because, you know, I don't think there's room in the fridge. He's got all kinds. And you know what the issue is? The issue is the hands that created it. Imagine a church where the people of the church embrace this simple principle. That when I deal with other people that I know, that I love, that I don't know, that I can't stand, it's an opportunity to worship my Heavenly Father. You know what worship is? Worship is simply ascribing worth or value to something or someone. So listen, when you and I meet people who, uh, who as artwork, they seem kind of poor, you know, what do you do? What, do you, what, what are you about? What, do you, what, do you, what, 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 what value are you to me? When we accept them, when we treat them respectfully, do you know what we do? We worship and we ascribe worth to the hands that created them. So what would happen in your marriage if you embrace this? I know your husband, he's a bum. He's not that smart and he's not that handsome. And he doesn't take responsibility for things and he doesn't behave right and he doesn't do the things. His character kind of stinks. Or what about your wife? She's, you know... Her character stinks too. But every night and every morning, you look at him and you look at her and you recognize God's signature. Suddenly he's acceptable and respectable and worth has worth. Suddenly she's acceptable and respectable and she has worth. Not because of their behavior, not because of their character, but because he or she is the premier creation of our Heavenly Father. And you show him respect and love by the way that you treat his creation. Just like I show my children respect by the way that I treat their artwork. So what would happen? Let me tell you some good news. Because maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know, I have poor self-esteem, and my parents this, and my spouse that, and my ex something else, and this happened, and this happened. And so my, my whole problem, really, I guess, is poor self-esteem. I got some great news for you. All of our self-esteem is tied into the same thing. And we live in a world that ties our self-esteem into performance, into what you can produce, into achievement, and what you can accumulate, into your looks and your image and all that. But the reality is this. We are all God's artwork. That's the only thing that gives us significance. That's the only thing we can find security in. Everything else comes and goes. Whatever you can do now, in a few years, you may not be able to do. Whatever you look like today, in a few years, you may not look like that anymore. It could actually get worse. However much money and success you've had, you could lose it all in a moment. It all comes and goes. Our security is rooted and grounded in the fact that His hands made us. We were thought in the mind of God before the creation of the world. So here's the challenge. And this will change the way that we do relationships. This is the way that you respond and the way that you react to people. It can change all of that. The challenge is to begin to look at people and think they have the signature of God on them. 
He has a signature of God. She has a signature of God. He's God's artwork. She's made in God's image. And God, I'm going to show you honor in the way that I respond to and treat and love these people. This is why Jesus said, they're going to know you're Christians. They're going to know you're my followers by your bumper stickers, by the fish symbol on your car, by the cross around your neck, by the radio station you have preset in your car, because your car's in the parking lot every time the church door is open, by your behavior, because you do this and you don't do something else. No. He says, they'll know your followers of mine by the way that you respond to and react to and respect and handle my artwork, by the way that you love one another. This is just amazing to me. That's why the perfect holy son of God, think about this, that's why the perfect holy son of God could come into this world and embrace sinful humans because when he looked in the eyes of the Pharisees, when he looked into the eyes of prostitutes, when he looked into the eyes of those crooked and corrupt and despised tax collectors, he looked into the eyes of Samaritan outcasts, he looked into the eyes of the lame and the blind and the demon-possessed, he looked into the eyes of the Roman soldiers, and he saw something of the Heavenly Father in them. And because of that, they were all acceptable, they were all respectable, they were all invited to become part of the kingdom of God. This is the thing that God's called us to. Listen to this song. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity may one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, yes they'll know we are Christians by our love. Bye.
are Christians by our love, by our love.